here to open God's Word with us and learn from Him. Um, if you get a chance, by the way, and I would just encourage you to do this, um, especially with our uh, our new younger pastors. You know, Scott's older than me, actually, but younger in the ministry pastors. Uh, this is something that we do with Pathways when we go overseas and we work with uh, pastors in other countries, uh, and we're trying to be an encouragement to them, is to be specific in our encouragement with them. So if you want to be a big encouragement to somebody like Scott or Pastor Josh when he is sharing the Word, there's a challenge I'd like you to take up the next time they do it. And it's this, to write on a sheet of paper uh, one thing that you liked about their message and one thing that you learned from it, specifically. No criticism, no, uh, you know, or you should have said, or any of that, just one thing you liked and one thing you learned, and pass that on to them. Because it'll be a huge encouragement and it'll, it'll help to shape they're preaching in a very positive direction. It's uh, one of the things that we do. It's one of the things that I did uh, last week uh, for Scott as a point of feedback. I had someone else write some things for him as well. And uh, it'll be a, a good practice for us to be in. But on top of that, one of the things it will do for you is it changes your approach to hearing God's Word because you're looking for something you're going to learn and something you're going to like about what is shared with you as you listen. And so, uh, if you will do that for me, uh, it's, it's going to be a few weeks yet before we have another another person in the pulpit other than me. So you're stuck with me for the foreseeable. But uh, but I will um, I will challenge you on this again. It's a, just a good practice. One thing you liked, one thing you learned uh, from God's word. Now, uh, to focus our attention on. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to be in Nehemiah 5 today, and as you make your way there, I just want to give you a little story about my own background, my own upbringing. I, I'm a kid of the 80s, uh, and you know the 90s are kind of uh, the back in the day part for me, you know, the part when I was uh, young and um, I still had all of my hair and all of that kind of thing. You know, I grew up in the era of the moral majority, uh, when, when contemporary Christian music uh, was not only a magazine that you could get in the mail, if, if, I, I think that's still a thing, um, but it was a big deal, and you could fill arenas with alternatives to what was on the radio uh, on in terms of rock bands and so forth. They were Christian rock bands, and they filled arenas across the country. And, and, um, and there was a sense, I don't know if it was in the air, I don't know if it was in uh, just the people I was around or the, the radio programs that I would listen to. I'm really dating myself now. Now it's all on podcasts, right? But back then you listened to the radio and you would hear people like James Dobson or you would hear uh, other you know guys preaching on the radio, right? Uh, it was a thing you had in your car, right? Um, but in any case, uh, you would listen to this stuff. And one of the things that I, I, I did kind of had as a sense growing up was this idea that the biggest problems that were confronting the church and me as a believer, the things that I would really struggle with as I, as I grew up and as I tried to walk with Jesus, they were all external to me. 
Like, like you know, it's those people, those unbelievers, those non-Christians out there that are the real problem. And if I could just fix them, if I could just get the right people into office, if I could just get the right program back into our school, if we could just get prayer back into the school system, well, then that would make a big advance. If we could just do this and this and this, well, then we can fix everybody. And then, then there wouldn't be any opposition to me as a Christian, right? And that idea has some really seductive appeal. Because it externalizes all of the problems that we were having within the church of Jesus Christ at the time in which we still have to this day. And what Nehemiah 5 is about is about the fact that the opposition that Nehemiah is dealing with and the problems he is encountering, part of those are external. He's got the Ashdodites, the Philistines to the west that are rising in opposition. He's got Sanballat uh, from Samaria and his army coming in from the north. He's got, uh, he's got the Ammonites over to the east, over in uh, what, what is today called Ammon in Jordan, but was Ammon then center of the Ammonites, off to the east. And he had the Arabs to the south in the desert. He's surrounded by opponents, some of which want him dead. But then, that's not the biggest and most serious challenge. The biggest and most serious challenge he's encountering is the sin within their own community. And that's what Nehemiah 5 deals with is the sin not outside, inside the camp, inside the city of Jerusalem as they're trying to rebuild. And, and here's what I've discovered as I've grown in the Lord, that opposition to us from outside doesn't have to be successful if we discredit ourselves by our behavior on the inside. Amen? It doesn't have to succeed if our message and our lives are discrediting to the, what we profess and what we say and speak and do and think. The un unbelieving world doesn't have to successfully oppose me or the gospel or the church of Jesus Christ if my life and thoughts and and speech are all discrediting all on their own. And the issue that Nehemiah chapter 5 is written to address is this, that just as the work of rebuilding is really moving, just after they have successfully withstood a huge challenge from outside their community in chapter 4, just as they are in fact halfway up the wall, the hard work of the people of God gets sidetracked by serious sin from within their own ranks. And so I want to read the Scripture to us, and I also want to uh, allow the... I want to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to, uh, to speak to us about what He has to say to us from His Word uh, here this morning. So if you got your Bible, uh, and get to Nehemiah chapter 5, 
And then if you're able, stand as we read God's word together. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of the, our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not our, in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise, so may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us in our situation today. That as we try to rebuild, uh, we know that sin will arise among your people too. 
And we know, Father, that it needs to be dealt with. So, Father, we thank you for this passage that gives us a model for how to do so. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us and show it to us and help us to follow the example of Scripture we've been given, enabled and empowered by your Holy Spirit. And Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, what you see in the first five verses of this chapter are, is sin rising among the people of God. Uh, there is apparently a famine that is afflicting people. Even as they're trying to rebuild, there are people who are hungry and they fall into one of three groups. There are people who are rebuilding who say, you know, I've got to go, I've got to stop work and I've got to figure out how to feed my family because I can't get any grain from anybody around here. And so I've got to stop work and go feed my family. And then there are others who are worse off who are saying, well, uh, I not only need to get grain, but I'm in the process of mortgaging my, my fields and my farms in order to get, to get food and take care of my family. And others are worse off even than that, and they're saying, well, I would be mortgaging my fields and my farms, except that I don't have any left. They've taken them from me, and now I'm having to sell my children into slavery just to get food. This is the situation. Now, it's hard for us to imagine this in a day when there's, you know, you get credit card applications in the mail, and uh, where you can get yourself indebted up to the eyeballs and then walk away from it in bankruptcy court, right? Uh, but in those days, you could not do that. And it's an agricultural economy. And so here's the deal. Uh, you would, if you, if you had to borrow, you had to borrow against something, collateral. And what you had was the future crops of your land. You were selling grain futures, essentially. Or wine futures. Or olive oil futures, etc. Just as people do in the commodities market today. And you would sell those, and then you would say, I will pay you back when the crop comes in. Well, now, what happens if you have a drought? The crop doesn't come in. Or at least not in the same at the same degree. And so not only now have you got little food because you're living on your farm and what it produces, but also you've got to pay your debts back with what now less amount it feed you. And in order to acquire anything, what have you got? You've got a situation in which everything that is available is more expensive. Because when supply drops and demand stays the same, the price goes up. Right? And so whatever people are willing to sell, they are willing to sell only for a high price. And so now you get this situation where now I've got to mortgage my farm against the future, and then if the future doesn't pay off, they seize my farm, my house, my fields, my vineyards, 
And then if it doesn't pay off the next year so where I can get back out of debt, what have I got left? I've got the labor of members of my own house, my children and myself, who I have to start selling into slavery to get out of debt. That was the custom of the ancient world. You either paid your debt, or we took your stuff, or we sold you into slavery. Now, there was one great exception to that in the cultures of that day, and that culture was Israel. And if you were a Jew, you could not, you could not take permanent possession of anybody's stuff. If, if someone gave you their cloak as collateral on a loan, you had to return it to them at night. You could come pick it up in the morning. Because if that's what they were using as collateral on the loan, they needed it to sleep in, and you had to bring it back to them at night so they had a way to cover up. And then you could take possession of it during the day, and then you brought it back to them at night, and it kept you in relationship with them. And if you mortgage your fields... Every seven years, the debt was canceled. And if you sold permanently a field that was attached to a city, every 50th year, all of those went back to their ancestral owners. So that once every generation, in the year of Jubilee, everyone's property would be restored and their family would get a new start. The idea was that there would be no permanent underclass in Israel. And then on top of that, you could not sell your fellow Israelite into slavery, and when you loaned them anything, it had to be at 0.0% interest. You could loan to the Gentiles at interest, but to your fellow brothers and sisters, you had to lend on 0% interest terms whenever it got paid back. But what has happened in Nehemiah's day is that the culture of the surrounding peoples has infected the culture of the people of God. And there are these noblemen and wealthy people in the city of Jerusalem who look at what is legal and culturally and socially acceptable in everybody around them, and they say, you know, this, this famine's working out. It's going to be a good way for me to get some additional houses, some additional fields, a little bigger olive orchard, a little bigger uh, vineyard here, and I'm just going to start expanding my wealth in this time of need. And the outcry goes up. Because what's happened is the people of God have started imitating the culture of the people around them. And instead of being generous to their brothers and sisters, instead of actively caring for them, they are now taking advantage of them and sinning against them. And when sin arises like that among the people of God, there's something that has to be done about it. And what has to be done is first it needs to be confronted, and then those who are participating in it need to confess, and then those who have been sinning need to abandon it, to leave it behind, to repent of it, turn away from it, and leave it in the past. And what we see in verses uh, 6 to 14 is exactly that, that progression. 
That beautiful, repentant progression of sin that is confronted, actually confronted twice because it takes a couple times for them to get it. And then it is finally confessed and then it is completely rejected and turned away from. That's a beautiful thing that happens among the people of God here in this story. So uh, what you see in verses 6 and 7 uh, are the uh, are Nehemiah's initial reaction, verse 6, and then verse 7, the, the first and then the second of two confrontations of this. Uh, what Nehemiah does in the first, in it, when he hears this, his first reaction is to get mad. You see that? Verse 6 it says, When I heard this, it made me angry. Let me just ask you a rhetorical question here. Is it okay that he's mad about somebody else's sin? Yeah. Sin should, especially sin among the people of God, should make us angry. Because it's not right can't do anything about the sin of people out there a lot of times but sin in here ought to provoke a holy reaction and it does in Nehemiah's case and and we know that it's a holy reaction because he doesn't just get mad and start yelling at people he gets mad and he channels that anger into doing the right thing and in this case the right thing to do is to verse 7 go to those who are uh, sinning here and confront them. Now he first does so privately. But what you read is that it says he took counsel with himself and then he went to the nobles and those who were uh, sinning, the officials, and said to them, you're exacting interest each from their brother. And what you don't read in verse 7 is, and then they repented. But he went to them privately first, I think, is what that's describing, and saying, hey guys, um, you're charging people interest. You're not, you know you're not supposed to be doing that. No response. And so, step two, and I convened a great assembly against them. In other words, this now becomes public. The whole community showed up. And he lays out in front of the entire community their sin. Uh, some of them are not only charging interest on debts uh, to their brothers and sisters, some have gone so far as to turn selling people into slavery into a racket. Do you see that? Where it's like, hey, this guy owes me money. He can't pay it back. I'm going to sell him into slavery to you so that you can turn around and, and sell them back out of slavery to these guys. I mean, Nehemiah's got deep pockets, so sell, it, sell this guy to him. But let me sell him to you first. And we'll both make money on the deal. How about that? That's a special kind of wickedness. And they are doing this, by the way, despite the example of Nehemiah himself and his family and his members of his court who were all lending money and grain at zero interest so that they can help their brothers and sisters through this effort. 
and through this difficult time. And so verse 11, Nehemiah says, look, we're not doing this because we fear God, and you should fear God as well. And so here's what you need to do. You need to return everything you've taken. And you also need to return, as far as possible, the interest that you have charged. And that might seem radical to us as we read that, because it's foreign to our culture that we would do that. But here's the deal. Whenever sin happens, real repentance requires making an effort to restore what you have broken by your sin. Sin always destroys, it always breaks, it always abuses people. And so, and so he says, look, you've got to make an effort here to make this right. And in this case, they had gained financially by their sin, and so their repentance requires returning everything that they've gained. And, and so they say, well, we're going to do that. And on top of that, we're going to charge everybody nothing. In other words, we're going to eliminate not just the interest and return everything, but we're going to cancel their debt entirely. And Nehemiah says, well, that sounds really good. But while we're here and in front of everybody, we're going to call in the priests and you're going to make a vow. Now, why would that be important? Because in Israel at this time, who is your access into worship? The priests. And so if you make a vow in public to do something and you don't do it, guess who gets to hold you accountable to that? The priests. Hey, wait a minute. I'm, I'm glad you're here for worship, but uh, have you done what you said you would do? Um, okay, so I can't take your sacrifice today, but you can, you can make it tomorrow after you go home and figure that out. Right? That's the idea. And he puts them under God's curse if they don't do it. You see that? I love this. This is such a beautiful little word picture. He takes all of his robes and he shakes them out. Like you ever shaken out a rug? My mother used to have rugs in the house and we would have to go outside and shake them. And you'd, you'd see all the dust and dirt and everything just flung everywhere. Well, this Nehemiah does that. There's just all the dust and dirt flying through the air. And he says, in the same way, may God shake you out of your house. And may God put you into slavery if you go back on your word. In other words, what you've done to other people, may it come down on your head. If you don't do what you promise. And they all say, okay. Why? Because they are actually truly repentant. How do we know? Look at, look, at, uh, look at your Bible there. All the people in the assembly, all the people, including the people who were the subject of it, said amen and praised the Lord. They went into worship because God had given them repentance. And all the people, because of their repentance, did what, what they had promised. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And um, 
you know, what we see in this, in the rest of the chapter, is also really exciting to me. Because what you see in the rest of the chapter is that this kind of reform is led by leaders who themselves live for God's reward. That Nehemiah is not a guy who simply says for a short period of time, uh, do as I say, not as I do. He says, do what I'm doing. Walk with me. Imitate Christ uh, by imitating me. Do what I do. And what does Nehemiah do? He shows us. Uh, we find out in these verses a few interesting things. The first thing we find out is exactly how long Nehemiah was governor. Now, Nehemiah, the book, is written after the events that it records. And we find out in chapter 5 here in this section that Nehemiah was governor for about 12 years. From the 20th year of Artaxerxes until the 32nd year, he was governor of this province and this area. And the other important thing we find out is uh, what, that, what Nehemiah did and the fact that he practiced what he preached. He not only gave money and food to those in need through this drought, he also, he also for the entire 12 years, lived in generosity because it says he feared the Lord. He says, I did this because I feared the Lord. And so let me explain a little bit. Nehemiah, as the king's cupbearer, would have had a salary, probably a, a fairly significant one, but a salary nonetheless. And he also, as part of his position as governor, would have received a salary via taxation and uh, provisions as the governor that you're being taken care of in this area by the produce of the area you're in. And what Nehemiah does is look at his finances and then look at the people that he is surrounded by and he realizes these people around me are right on the edge. And rather than receive what would benefit me and what would take care of my needs, I'm going to give out of my resources for those who have less. And so he takes his salary for his role as king's cupbearer and uses it to finance the daily needs of his court. Whereas before, everybody else was taxed in order to 40 shekels of silver a day to pay for all these things. Nehemiah says, no, I will pay for it out of my bank account. And the people will pay nothing while I'm governor. So he not only flees from sin, he lives in complete in the complete opposite fashion of what people have been doing. He not only doesn't steal, he gives. And for 12 years, all of the needs of 150 people in his court and himself and his family and anybody else who comes through the area as part of a state visit is all provided for out of Nehemiah's own pocket. And not a single dollar is taken to support his needs out of taxation. How about that? Now, I think this passage points us to some great application for us today. I think it's easy in the life that we are in right now, here in 2021, it's easy for us as the people of God who are a minority in this country 
to feel embattled, to feel surrounded on all sides by opponents. We don't have people who want to kill us, but we do have a lot of opposition. Amen? And the people of Israel in Nehemiah's day were surrounded not just by opponents, but by enemies. And yet the more serious issue here in chapter 5 was not who they were surrounded by, but the sin that had got inside among God's people. And I think very often in our day, that is the more significant challenge here. If I had asked you a month ago uh, what you thought of Robbie Zacharias and his ministry, I bet a lot of people would have given rave reviews. Amen? If I ask you today, what would you think? That the guy who built a ministry as one of the country's great apologists is a sexual predator, is what you would think. And he lived a duplicitous life. And lots of Christians do maybe not the same kind of sin, but they live the same kind of duplicitous life. Amen? And we in the church can be prone to looking just like the world. Looking just like the world and doing what is legal and socially acceptable in our times and fitting into the culture more than fitting into alignment with what God's Word demands. And so you see within the people of God things like materialism and greed and selfishness and unforgiveness and lack of love for one another and pornography and divorce and immorality and drunkenness and drug addiction and and, and, and. And many times the people of God are indistinguishable in the way that they think and speak and act from the people around them. And I just want to speak pastorally here for a second to us here at Silly Bible. One of the most exciting things to me of this pandemic period that we have lived through is that we have seen over the last several months revival breaking loose in our pews. And we see it in the number of people who have grown tired of living in hypocrisy and who have decided that instead of that, what they're going to do is bring forward their sin to somebody, often me or one of the other pastors or one of the elders, and, and say, look, this is what I've been up to. And I'm tired of carrying this burden anymore. And will you help me get free? And you know what our answer has been? Yes. We are so glad that you are wanting to be set free from sin. But I am not foolish enough to believe that, that all that we have seen so far is all that needs to happen. Amen? And some of it has been in public, praise the Lord. Some of it has been in private, praise the Lord. But here's the deal. When sin arises among the people of God, the same kind of response we see in this chapter of Nehemiah is the same response that needs to happen in us today. 
Sin, when it comes up, needs to be confronted, and then it needs to be confessed, and then it needs to be abandoned. Amen? Amen. And so we're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to encourage one another to be set free from sin. When it comes up in the conviction of the Spirit in your own heart, uh, it needs to be that confrontation from Him needs to be responded to in confession and then in abandonment. And if you can't get free of it on your own, come find somebody who can help you. And if we're going to succeed, we're going to need leaders like Nehemiah. We're going to need leaders and godly men and women of all kinds who live for God's reward. The thing I love about Nehemiah is that he turns his description of how he lived into a prayer at the end. Did you catch that? Where he says, remember what I've done for my good, oh my God. Because he is asking, look God, I didn't just do this because I thought it was the right thing to do. I did it because I I honored and feared and revered you and I'm living out my life for your honor, for your glory, for your reward. And praise God, we have within our church a whole bunch of people who live for God's reward. They do not live for the applause of men and women. They live because and they sacrifice for people uh, good because they fear the Lord, because they want His reward and His blessing. Amen? We have ministry team leaders and deacons Uh, both men and women who live for God's reward. We have elders and pastoral staff who live for God's reward. We We are shot through with people like this. But guess what? We don't have nearly enough. And we are going to need every single person as we rebuild to be a person who lives for God's reward. Who prioritizes His call, His plan, His purpose, His gifting, and the usage of them in order to move forward and rebuild successfully. And we're going to have to be serious about hating sin and fearing God. We're going to have to be serious about loving God's people, about embracing grace and repentance and growth in Christ-likeness and sharing the Gospel because we live for God's reward. If we run out of people like this, then we are surely going to fail in what we have ahead of us. But if we live by the Spirit, empowered by His grace, growing in Christ, walking by the Spirit's empowerment, we cannot help but succeed. And I believe that's what's going to happen. And so I want to pray and seek the Lord for these things. And then we get to do two really amazing, cool things today. We get to celebrate communion. And then we get to baptize people who are new in Christ. And that is going to be a fun thing. So let's pray and let's ask God's aid and then let's celebrate together. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank You that You are alive and powerful and that You are at work in Your Word and in our hearts and in our relationships and in our lives in every part. That there is not one 
thing in all of the universe which exists outside your control and your sovereign love and your grace. And so, Father, I pray for us, your people, that we would hate sin because we love you. I pray that we would confront it and confess it and abandon it. That as the people of God, that we would live out the new life you have given to us and that we might uh, shine like a light in a dark and dying culture who desperately needs the gospel of Christ and the transformation that Christ brings. Father, help us to, to live in a way that draws people in to the knowledge of the Lord. And that deals at least with at least as much energy with the sin inside us as we are agitated by the sin outside. And Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit might, might work in our lives in this way, in Jesus' name, amen.